world of licenses is the legal world, a world where the literal meaning of words is important and where all the crevices are exploited. I'm not a lawyer, nor have I studied laws, and whatever I say will be based on what I understood from my readings. In this episode, we're going to do a small overview of the topic of licenses on Unix. But beware, a small overview in the legal world is quite heavy. I'm Vinam, and you're listening to The Nixers Podcast. first define what a software license is from Wikipedia. Start quote. A software license is a legal instrument, usually by way of contract law, with or without printed material, governing the use or redistribution of software. End quote. The software license can be distributed on paper or in digital form and usually contains rules granting or removing rights, imposing restrictions that the users of the software should agree to or otherwise would commit copyright or license infringement. Licenses can also contain some lines about liability and responsibility from both parties, the software provider and the user. And some it's a contract. Legality falls under the laws of the country and so they might vary from one place to the other. All countries can have their own jurisdictions. For instance, the Marshall Islands have zero copyright laws. Beyond that, there are some international treaties that are signed by some countries to mutually respect copyrighted materials, such as the Treaty of Bern Convention and the World Intellectual Property Organization. So let's not discuss too much the legality and more about some interesting stories and stuffs related to Unix that you might fancy. In the 50s till the 70s, 80s, it was common for computer programs to be shared with their source code. It was the norm. Everyone had the permission and the ability to modify the software for their specific usage. There were even organizations of users and suppliers that got formed around sharing the softwares, such as Share and Decus. This changed around the end of the 60s, when the competition in the software world got tighter. Usually it was the hardware manufacturer that shipped the software with the hardware it was producing, but now independent software distributors started selling the software untied to the hardware. A court case filled in 1969, started in 1975 and finally dropped in 1982, US vs IBM, stated that bundling hardware with software was anti-competitive and brought monopoly to the marketplace which is weird if you talk to the DRMs of today. And so some of the software industry of the 70s and early 80s began distributing binaries and proprietary packages, taking measures to limit the copying and spreading of their softwares so that they could keep their ma marketplace. While the software is distributed this way, as binaries, that is, it cannot be studied nor changed. Unix-wise, before 1975, all the research Unix that Bell Lab produced were for internal use only. It was only in 1975 that the first source license for Unix version 5 was sold to the University of Illinois Department of Computer Science, UIUC. 
This was a great move for the University of Illinois because they started working on implementing ARPANET on those Unix machines, creating the RFC 681 for network Unix with FTP and Telnet clients. The first Unix later to include them was PSD. At the time, Bell Labs wanted to sell licenses for non-university users and they wanted to sell them for $20,000, which was very expensive. And the version 6 of Unix did turn that around and was the first commercially successful Unix. It remained the most widely used version into the 80s. Version 7 superseded it later on in 1978, but V6 still remained the most used one. And as we said, at those times the source code was available to anyone who got the software, and so it was a great tool to teach in university. The license they provided with the software didn't explicitly said anything special about sharing the source. Licenses for softwares didn't mean much yet. One of the university who got hold of Unix version 5 in 1974 was the University of Berkeley. Now you might wonder, that's before 1975. Yes, it is, because no license was sold to Berkeley, at least not yet. It all happened because a teacher named Bob Fabry was teaching a course about operating system principles and took Unix as an example. It was more like an informal notice written by the developers themselves. One year later, Ken Thompson, one of the creators of Unix, visited the university and helped install Unix version 6 on the machines they had. Some students got quite fond of the system and began improving it and adding softwares they liked. Bill Joy was one of those students. And because the other universities became interested in the work they were doing with Unix at Berkeley, in 1977 Bill Joy and friends compiled a distribution of all the add-ons over the version 6 and distributed it under the name BSD, Berkeley Software Distribution. Finally, in 1980, the US established and its law that computer softwares were copyrightable. Before that, softwares were not considered nor intellectual property nor copyrightable. They were open ideas for everyone. Actually, this process didn't really start in the 1980, because in 1976, there were already copyright acts related to softwares. It was just that they weren't all agreed on yet. Let's say it started in 1976 and got settled in 1980 because they wanted to make sure that softwares embodied an author's original creation. So from this point onward, you could claim that a software was yours instead of distributing binaries or do nasty tricks to deter your user from sharing it. Now you have the laws behind you, at least in the US. In 1983, a hacker at the MIT Artificial Intelligence Laboratory, Richard Solman, was a bit frustrated with how the software industry and users were closing themselves. And so he announced a project called GNU, which aim was to release a free operating system. In 1985 he released the GNU Manifesto, which was an explanation of the GNU philosophy, the base definition of free software and the copyleft ideas. But still, in the 80s, Unix was the corporate norm. It was what organizations liked. And what do organizations do when something becomes popular? They try to regularize it. It needed regulations because everyone was customizing their own version and brand of Unix-like system. It was creating too many rivalries and doing more harms than good. There were mainly two groups that appears trying to do that. 
1984, there was the X slash Open Company, which was a consortium of several European Unix system manufacturers. Uh, they had for aim to create a single specification for all Unix, and the members were all big players, big companies. And the other one was in 1988, there was the OSF Open Software Foundation, which is a not-for-profit organization, this time in the US also to create open standard for implementing Unix systems. The two of them joined way later on in 1996 to form the Open Group with 500 members. They hold a sort of public approved certificate saying what is Unix and what isn't, and the term is trademarked by them. Anything that has the term Unix is licensed under their system to have this name, which comes with royalty fees. And this Open Group brand isn't cheap. To register your product to the trademark license, you have to pay at least $2,500 plus a $1,000 annual fee and more payment for a bunch of other things. So it's good to know that in 1997, the Open Group got hold of the responsibility of the X-Windowing system. Now back in time in 1989, after all the legislation and standardization happening, the guys at Berkeley were still distributing their softwares, the BSD. It had already reached version 4.3. However, they were paying fees to AT&T, the parent company of the Bell Labs, the, and they got very expensive. Yep, mobile company are all tycoons, and that's true. Now, if you remember, the University of Illinois made the specs for Unix networking, and it got implemented first in BSD. Many people requested this networking code without the hassle of licensing, and so that's what the BSD did. They crafted the custom license, the BSD license, to distribute their Net1 code, the networking code. The BSD license is very permissive and allows the source code to be modified, reused, and to be sold, with, which was perfect for the industry. In 1991, they got fed up with the AT&T and rewrote all the standard Unix utilities under the BSD license so that they would not be tied to any copyright. They named it 386 BSD. But you don't get away from a titan without a scar. AT&T sued them for infringing copyright material. They filled the lawsuit in 1992, USL versus BSDI. This dealt a blow to the BSD communities and slowed down their development. BSD wasn't a good choice anymore for corporates. And a year before that, in 1991, a student named Linus Torvalds was working on a kernel named Linux, a Unix clone, which he decided to release as free under the license Stallman created, the GPL, GNU General Public License. Together joined with the userland utilities that the GNU project had, it created the GNU plus Linux operating system. It had no ambiguity with the license and attracted the attention of volunteer programmers and spread because of the open community and sharing ideas, much like the first days of Unix with university students. Then one year after it had started in 1993, the case USL versus BSDI lawsuit was settled out of court and the FreeBSD and NetBSD projects emerged. Once the BSD code was released, it got widely adopted as the base of many proprietary Unix variants, as it did before, all of that because of how easy and permissive the BSD license is with commercial use. And still today several operating systems choose to use softwares under the BSD license for the same reasons, macOS and iOS being two well-known examples. 
1995, the Apache HTTP server, commonly referred to as Apache, was released under the Apache License 1.0, which is also a permissive BSD-like license that allows commercial use. It was used to undergird the advent of the World Wide Web. In 1997, Eric Raymond published The Cathedral and the Bazaar, which was one thing that more or less put into word what the hacker community loved about sharing softwares. And this book was one of the factors that incited Netscape to release their internet suite software under the free license, which is why we have the whole Mozilla ecosystem today, and a key event that influenced others to release free and open source softwares after that. Mozilla license is GPL compatible, which means it's permissive but at the same time doesn't allow change of the software to be shared without the source code. This is the idea of copyleft that the GNU project envisioned. In 2002, a, co a company named Santa Cruz Operation released the source code of some ancient Unix relicensed under a BSD license. SCO was the first Unix company founded in 1979 and filled bankruptcy in 2007. It used to port many Unix softwares to many platforms. One fun news of that released was on the Nintendo Game Boy Advance, which was made to run with the Unix V5 using a PDP-11 emulator. It's also a great way to learn about operating system theories. And this is where we are now. And this is where we are now. You might be questioning yourself a lot about licenses, just like BSD has relicensed itself and the SCO relicensed their Unix. How is relicensing possible? What do those licenses really mean? What are the ones used today and what should I know? According to the Free Software Foundation, there are only two big categories of software licenses. They are either proprietary or free and open source. That's a very narrow view of the matter, a black and white fallacy, as we'll delve into later on, but for the moment let's just presume it's true. According to this entity's chosen distinction, the difference between a free and open source software and a proprietary one lies in the rights granted to the users. A free and open source license being one that allows both modifying and reusing the software, which as a premise implies that the source will be somehow available. Then again, according to their distinction, a proprietary software is everything else. But what about softwares without licenses and unlicensed software? Is it outside of the copyright protection? Is it in the public domain? What if that software is an internal trade secret software used inside the company? There are no correct answers to this. It depends first on the country and second on the court choice during the legal appeal. In some, it's complicated. In the US, a software distributed without license is fully copyright protected and thus you can't legally use it until the right has been granted. That's as long as there is an owner to the software, which is usually before the copyright expires. Some countries, like the United States, have a limited lifetime for copyright. When the copyright or patent expires, it falls under the public domain. A patent being a right to a certain type of invention, which is again a vague term. There are other legal mechanisms too, such as legislations and trademarks. What about softwares distributed on GitHub without license, you may ask? Well, yes, beware, that is also applying here. 
under most international treaties such as the Berne Convention, an author automatically obtains the exclusive right to anything they have written, even rights over der derivative works. So remember to always add a license to your projects when pushing them. However, it's also not as simple as that. Someone using a software without license can win a court appeal and the copyright can be waived away. The legal border is thin because releasing anything without license is not like releasing with a license. The only true way to relinquish a software into the public domain is to do it explicitly via a license such as the CC0, Creative Commons 0, and the What the Fuck Public License. That way you're assured to have completely lost ownership, trademark, and patent to the software. You must be explicit about whatever you do so that you stay in accordance with the country's laws. So what's inside a license? What varies from one to the other? Licenses are contracts that or extend the legislation of the citizens of a certain country over the software or widen their rights over the software, rights that would otherwise be disallowed by default copyright. So yeah, you've got the base laws of the country and the license over it. My, many licenses only enumerate those basic rights that the user already has under the law, but keep in mind that the rights you have as a citizen cannot be taken away if they conflict with the license. That's simply not possible. Free software licenses are said to be more or less non-contractual extensions, as they aren't really an agreement between parties, but that remains to be contested as they are still an agreement, somehow. We'll see later on in this podcast someone has to be held accountable for, for the infringement. For instance, citizens in the US that own the software have the explicit right to use the software with a computer, even if that software accidentally makes copy of itself. You are legally entitled to own copies of a software you own. There's also a first sale doctrine in the US that grants middlemen resellers the right if they own something to resell or rent it even if they are copyrighted material, as long as they own it, which is not the case with proprietary software. This is called distribution right. However, it's vague how it applies to digital goods as an item can be copied indefinitely. And the European Union, the laws differ where a copyright holder cannot oppose the resale of a digital sold software. Where that is more of a play on word is when an end user isn't the owner of the software. That is the precise definition of a proprietary software. A software you are borrowing and not owning. The software technology might be patented, for instance. The intellectual property rights remain with the entity that provided the software and thus a proprietary software doesn't give you the same right as a citizen as a software you own. In that case, the user has to sign an ULA and user license agreement with the digital good owner to be able to use it. Otherwise, without accepting the license, the user may or not be able to use the software at all. And ULA is yet another contract between the end user and the licensor that establishes the right the user has. Most of the time it is about liability, holding the software distributor, distributor non-liable for damages, or the user liable for infringement, and restrictions, which can range from forbidding reverse engineering, benchmarking, to limiting the number of users and the number of devices the software can be used on, etc. 
Free softwares also have an ULA that is part of the license. We'll see those in a bit. A nasty way of including the ULA is to do it in a shrink wrap manner. The term shrink wrap means that the ULA cannot be read before the product is actually bought, which means that if the users don't accept the license, they won't be able to use the software and would have paid for nothing. So what's inside the license really? The basic rights of your country? Who owns it? What rights and restrictions the end user has as modifying, reselling, benchmarking, sharing, etc.? Who is held liable? What responsibility the user has? And what responsibility the owner has? Depending on the way those previously mentioned liabilities, rights and restrictions are set, the license is said to be more open and free or less open and free. This is a better realistic approach than the mundane dichotomy the Free Software Foundation discusses. There is actually a lot of nagging over the definition of what is truly free software. The argument about those are really about how permissive the license is, the requirements for redistribution, if the license is copyleft or share alike or not, if the license allows derivative work, if the license allows selling the software or using it for advertisement, etc. We often hear about free and open source software, which is actually a vague umbrella term for software that provides liberty to their control and are open source. It's truly confusing because the distinction between open source and free software is nebulous. It's more philosophical than practical because they describe almost the same thing. Depending on who defines them, they might mean different things. It's a philosophical word and using free and open source software doesn't make anyone cry and that is why it's used as majority of the time instead of simply the term open source or the term free software. Some example organizations and group that put those definitions together are the Free Software Foundation, FSF, the OZ Open Source Initiative, the Debian Project, the BSD Project, etc. They all have different guidelines and definitions for free and open source software licenses, but generically they all allow to use the code for any purpose, modify it and redistribute it, which is normally forbidden by default copyright. What they also have in common is how they're perceived by the communities using it, for how they decrease cost, increase security and stability, privacy and control. Free and open source softwares often live surrounded by a community of contributors. Now let's talk about some of those philosophies. The Open Source Initiative is an organization that derives its license norms from the Debian Free Software Guidelines. They hold the list of licenses that they certify open source. Their definition is an open source license is a type of license for computer software and other products that allow the source code, blueprint or design to be used, modified and or shared under defined terms and conditions. Most of those popular free and open source licenses are approved as open source, for instance. The Apache license, BSD license, GPL, MIT license, Mozilla license, Eclipse public license, etc. On the side of the FSF, Free Software Foundation, which also holds a list of licenses agreeing to their views, they perceive everything that isn't in their definition of free software as an unfair shadow of what they are trying to achieve by bringing liberty and, and the free software world. They define free software in terms of liberty and not price. 
For them, liberty is based around community, sharing and respect of individuals, which lies in practicality inside licenses as the concept of copyleft, aka share alike. A copyleft is an additional clause that requires users who modified the code to also redistribute the modifications under the same license as the original software. This way, it protects all derivative works from drifting and losing their original permissions and be used in proprietary programs. Now what about the BSD side? The BSD camp has yet another position on licensing. They despise copyleft licenses and dismiss them as overly complicated and restrictive. It is true that copyleft licenses has an insane amount of clauses in their license compared to the usual four that, that you find in the BSD license family. The BSD license is simply permissive. It's about acknowledging that there was an original author and to keep this license so that the author is credited for his or her work. Some even consider the term permissive license that is synonym with anything that is BSD license. The BSD license family is liked because it can be used in proprietary softwares, as we've mentioned before. The supporters of the BSD license argue that it's more free than copyleft licenses because it, because it grants the right to do anything with the source as long as there is a attribution to the authors. But then according to this definition the public domain is more free than the BSD license. In the end it's all about philosophy. Because the BSD license only requires you to give credits to the authors without imposing any limitation on the usage, it can be used in proprietary softwares as we mentioned before. That means the license can be modified by adding new clauses to it as long as they don't conflict with the previous clauses. For instance, MATLAB is based on MathWorks, which is distributed under the BSD license but has an extra clause limiting its usage to the proprietary MATLAB which renders all the contributions useless outside of MATLAB. BSD license code can also be included in copylefted softwares by adding the clauses related to copyleft. That's what we refer to as compatible licenses. The Free Software Foundation indeed has the BSD license under its list of licenses that are considered free, but it doesn't work the other way around. Code under GPL cannot be relicensed under a BSD license without the consent of the copyright holders. For this reason, the BSD camp avoids at all costs to include anything under the GPL license and their distribution. They've recently switched from the GCC to the Clang LLVM compiler. Another reason is that GPL v3 includes new clauses about patent and trademark, which some individuals try to avoid. Some stay with the softwares under the V2, some switch to the BSD licenses. Several major free open source software projects like the Linux Kernel, MySQL, BuzzyBox, Blender, VLC Media Player decided against adopting the GPL v3. According to some stats, which are contested, between the 90s and 2000s, during the dot-com bubble, the GPL v2 was the most widely used license with a 42.5% usage rate. In 2015, according to the same company who released the first stats, uh, accompanied by GitHub stats, this time uh, said that it's now that the MIT license that is the most used and the GPL v2 being second this time. 
Other stats from Fedora in 2016 shows that the most used licenses and their packages are under the GPL license and second place the MIT license. Those stats shows that depending on where they are used, some licenses are more favored than others. Let's answer some odd questions. Can an open source software be used for commercial purposes? Sure, as long as the license doesn't limit you for what you want to do commercially. But beware that commercial is not equal to proprietary. Some licenses don't allow you to place extra restrictions on the user. Can I call my program open source or free software or X something? It's probably better to avoid that if your license isn't listed as an approved on that uh, organization or group website. You have the right to call it whatever you want in the end, but that would confuse people way too much. That applies even if you have just changed a few words or added one close, any small change applies. It's now a different license. Can I use the code that the miner re released as open source? This falls back to the laws of the country related to liability and copyright. In a lot of countries, the copyright is usually transferred to the legal parents who will sign and handle everything, just like with the parents of child stars. So when using the software of a minor, you are actually dealing with his or her parents. Can I have many licenses on a single software? What it's referring to is called multi-licensing, and the answer is yes, but that depends. Multi-licensing is the practice of distributing a software under two or more different set of terms and conditions. If someone wants to use the software, they can choose whichever license pleases them. Where it becomes tricky is when that license is permissive and allows adding terms to it. The original distributor is then not allowed to include the changes of a contributor that changed the license until all the original licenses are compatible with and not contradictory with the original one. The GPL goes a long way with that, not allowing code under the GPL v3 to be used with the code under GPL v2 if it doesn't include the any later version statement, for instance. Multi-licensing is common in scenarios where a free software company wants to make business, they release a software under a free license and another license which allows to create proprietary, proprietary softwares but has royalty fees. This is a sort of a business model of companies that use free software and want to remain the single vendor of it. There are many examples of multi-licensed software such as MySQL, FreeType, can I swap the license along the way? Can I change the license after I've set it in the first place? The short answer is yes, but again that depends. If you own all the code, then you can re-release the software under any license you want. That includes suddenly making a software under the GPL license into a proprietary one. The problem that arises is when you include patches, fixes and parts of code you don't own into your first released free software. Now, if you can prove those contributions are benign, not, not significant, and that the free and open source software license discussed or didn't discuss the topic of contribution, then you might be able to prove the code is still all yours, the original author. Otherwise, you will have to contact the other contributors so that they relinquish their software to you, a legal agreement that they give you ownership of their code. 
That's why in some communities like the FreeBSD and OpenBSD camp and also the Linux kernel, copyright assignment is considered bad taste, so there's none. What if someone still uses the prior free and open version, you may ask? Then this person is still able to make changes to the software as they wish. They are able to use it as just like any prior license implies. The new license doesn't apply to the old one. That is one reason sometimes projects get forked. A good recent example of this is Oracle that now owns MySQL and so the community forked it as MariaDB project. There are many examples of legal battle fought over free and open source licenses. Free software licenses have indeed been tested in court and their validity hasn't been contested. BusyBox is one interesting example. BusyBox is a wrapper of many core utilities that is under the GPL. In 2007, the Software Freedom Law Center SFLSC, announced it has filled the first ever US copyright infringement law lawsuit based on the violation of the GPL on behalf of its clients, two of the original developers of BusyBox, against Moonsun Multimedia Inc. This arose because Moonsun Multimedia publicly said that they were using BusyBox but were not releasing the source code of it to comply with the GPL copyleft clauses. The case was settled and BusyBox won, making Moonsun Multimedia pay fees and release the related source code. This was the first time compliance with GPL was brought to court. Let's give out some tips to choose the right license. There are websites which make it easy to search amongst licenses and understand their terms without having to read all the crevices in them. However, like all the summaries, they don't go into all the details. So check out Too Long To Read Don't Read Legal and chooseaLicense.com. There's also a tool called Fossa, which helps keep track of what licenses you are using so that you comply with them. So that's it for this episode. Legality is a deep subject. There are two books in the show notes that go into more details. One is called Understanding Open Source and Free Software Licensing which is a freely available book I haven't read but that I've just skimmed through. It goes over all the different licenses and discusses their ins and outs. The second one is also free. It's called Fundamentals of Software Licensing. This podcast was truly insightful for me. It answered a lot of questions I had and I hope it did for you too. And as usual, there's going to be a link in the show notes if you want to contribute and you can comments on the extended podcast thread to add anything that I'm missing or anything interesting or anything that I was mistaken about. So that's it. Cheers. It was Vinam for the Nixers podcast. Mm-hmm.